Uh, welcome back to another episode of Rick's Random Ramblings, the uh, popular culture and comic book podcast hosted by uh, yours truly, Rick. Uh, last week I left you guys off with um, a bit of a random episode, just talking about nostalgia and some of my favorite cartoons, um, and comic books and stuff like that. Odds and ends, uh, stuff that I held very near and dear to my heart. Um, This week, have um it's gonna be like a bit of a kind of like a mixed bag i would like i would describe it as it's a um want to talk about some recent comic some recent news not that recent when i really think about it's about a month old now um and how i feel about it and um about one of my personal favorite uh comic book series and um Again, I want to do a little more of a artist spotlight. Now, as of the recording of this video, um, there's this artist. His name was uh, Joe Kubert. Some of you guys might remember him, um, because he's the uh, he's the co-creator of Hawkman, and he's also the co-creator of Sergeant Rock and the Easy Company. Um, he's a fantastic artist, and his birthday was um, I think yesterday, as of recording this video. Um, he passed away some years ago in 2012 or 11. Um, he was always a famous, uh, always a favorite artist of mine. Um, I was very, very, very sad when I heard he had passed because I was, Hawkman was one of my favorite comic book characters growing up as a kid. And, um, and I really did enjoy his art. He's a fantastic artist. Um, I want to talk about those three things, uh, today. Those would be like our three main topics today. I want to start off with the Joe Kubert one because, um, like I said, I'm a very big fan of his work. Um, he's one of the artists that um, further uh, inspired me to push myself to do just a little bit better, to try out new new things, different things, um, new styles. Um, the best way I would describe his art style would be like... Um, very pulpy. Now, he started drawing comics professionally somewhere in the, the golden age, as they call it, that which was um, from 1939, the creation of Superman, all the way to 1954. Don't quote me on that, but it ends somewhere around the mid-50s. Um, right before the Silver Age, of course, starts. Um, uh, so he co-created Hawkman, who's, again, one of my, 56, there we go, I got it, 1938, 56, I had to look it up. Um, so he co-created one of my favorite character, comic book characters, Hawkman, who I think is by far one of the most underrated superheroes and books, like, ever. Now, um, as I said, his art's very pulpy, it look, reminds me of, like, uh, it looks very, it's really funny, because when he first started out, um, looking through some of his art from the 40s and the 50s, it looks very, um, very basic. Like, um, it just looks like every other artist at the time. I mean, I can still see, like, if you hand me a, a comic, I could tell if it was drawn by Joe Kuber or not, obviously, because I'm very accustomed to his work. However, for, like, um, if you're just looking at it offhand, you 
could have sworn it could have been like any other artist because they were very interchangeable at the time. There wasn't much um, diversity between them because everything kind of just looked a bit like cartoons. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just um, there's no real difference. It's kind of like watching uh, like watching movies with the same camera angles. Like there's no there's nothing really special about it. Other than obviously the story and the acting and stuff like that, and I feel like the same thing with comics. This, we're getting a lot, we're getting a little sidetracked here, but I think this is fine because this still relates to Joe Kubert. Um, but however, if you look at some of his work in the '60s and late '50s, you can see that he's developing his own like niche, like his own like style, which I really do appreciate in artists, especially when they're working professionally or. Just artists in general, I think this is um just something that we all need to start uh, need to, need to eventually start to do and start to like start to see a difference in our art, start to see like um, changes that um, that happen, and you can definitely see it in Joe Cooper's art, and it's definitely for the better. His art's very it went from the very pulpy, very typical um, comic booky feel to something that um. Something that I, I kind of related to, like, Sal Buscema or um, John Buscema. There were two uh, brothers who worked in the comic book industry in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even up to the 90s, I think. And they were um, they were just they were Marvel comic book artists while uh, Joe Kubert was looking at DC, but they were, um, they were just, like, really cool artists. They were very... Um, I don't really know how to describe it. It was like they started to use correct like anatomy structures. I know I, this is definitely something I would definitely want to talk about and save for another episode. But before, like before the late '60s, no artist in comics actually used correct anatomy. Like there was no, everything was just like everything was um like stylized and, and like a cartoon and everything was exaggerated. There were no real like uh, anatomy used like there were no real muscles per se like you just kind of did lines and that's how the audience knew that that was that line meant was meant to be a muscle but anyway uh back to this guy's art it was um it eventually morphed into that like it, you begin to see the correct anatomy structures you begin to see and the thing I really do love about his art is, at the time, it was very, very gritty, especially for the '60s. And I love the way he used to do his um, his tones and his cross hatching. It was they were all very so like uniform. It's so neat. It was like you took the time to add in these little details, like whether it be like someone's five o'clock shadow, or like just the textures on their face and stuff like that. That's something that um. Didn't see too often, um, in the um, during that time era, most of it was kind of like black. It was just like one black line. That was kind of like it. But whereas when you look at Hubert's art, it's very, you can just tell he took the time to add in these little details, and it's like he eventually got accustomed to working this field. I kind of hope he would, working it for so long, almost twenty years by the time the sixties came around. That he eventually began to see these shortcuts and began to um, see where to put a 
extra time and effort into it. Like, you don't want to spend too much time on, like, a shot with just a bunch of silhouettes, like, standing around. You want to put more time into, like, uh, on, like, a splash page or, um, like, a major action sequence or a character's facial expression and stuff like that. Um, that's not to say that you shouldn't, um, when you're drawing comic books, you shouldn't not put too much effort into every single page. You definitely should. It's just where do you spend the most amount of time on. And I feel like he mastered that um, pretty early on, I feel, in his career. So, yeah, even I, I myself, I struggle with it all the time. I can only imagine how it was back then when they didn't have all these shortcuts and tools. Uh, I, you, I take, I've been working digitally for the past like two years now, so I have like a bit of leeway because I kind of just, new layer, filter, yada, yada. However, this is all during the 60s and 50s, this is all done by hand. This isn't, it's all pencil and paper and inks. This isn't, um, it was just, you just had kind of had to do it the old fashioned way. And, um, you got to give him a lot of credit. But, um, now that's just something I just really want to talk about really quickly, which is Joe Kubert. He's, he uh, also opened up a school and, um, here in New Jersey, actually, uh, Dover, New Jersey, a school I actually want to go to eventually. It's a school, trade school, just for comic book writers. It teaches you how to draw comics and uh, how to hone your craft. It's a fantastic little place. Um, definitely check it out. Just, just because it's just a little historical monument here of Jersey. It's one, the one good thing about Jersey, I say. Um, yeah, he opened it up sometime in seventy. 76 he was even a teacher there for quite a long time actually uh and he taught people how to draw comics and a lot of those a lot of uh people actually a lot of students actually became pretty decent comic artists um it was stephen Bissett, amanda connor scott collins all fantastic artists all in their own right um i'm not huge on their work but still very respectable um and even his children, two of his, uh, I think he had five kids, two of them are a comic book artist. Uh, you probably know Andy Kubert, Adam Kubert. They did fantastic work on X-Men, The Hulk, Batman, Flashpoint. Um, did I say X-Men? I probably did. Probably can't remember. Um, always recording very late at night. Um, yeah, they're fantastic artists. I love their art. Uh, I have a few covers. Um. Uh, a few of them, uh, the Hulk and X-Men era. Um, Ultimate X-Men was another one. I think it might have been Andy Kubert. Uh, and their art style is actually pretty similar. Um, you can definitely see, um, I think it's uh, Adam Kubert that takes a more realistic approach, while his brother uh, takes more of a typical cartoonish uh, look to his books. And it's very, very cool. But definitely check them out if you're a fan of like old school comics. Um, I was reminded of this uh, because I was hunting. Um, I was reminded of artists because I was hunting um, some Hawkman comic books, and um, they're still a bit out of my budget. However, um, I was someone reminded me. Someone standing next to me saw me like looking through um, some Hawkman books, and they mentioned that it was Joe Kieber's birthday, and I just. I talk about him a little bit today. And, um, it's just really cool. Definitely check him out if you're just a fan of just old school books. Uh, Hawkman is some of my favorite 
Um, very cool stuff, this guy. Um, we're going to take a few minutes. Uh, we take a break. I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about some, uh, some what-if uh, stories from Marvel. And we're back. Um, I had to pause, grab myself a cup of coffee and a few snacks uh, while we continue with our, um, our episode today. Uh, so the next segment uh, is dedicated to the wife stories, like I said before. Um, so what are some of my favorite what-if stories? What kind of wife stories do I really, really appreciate? Um, I'm going to be honest, the type of wife stories, um, because... This came up because Marvel, about a month and a half ago, I'm really, really behind on this. I probably should talk about it before, but um, while I'm catching up, Marvel released some still images and stuff like that during a con of some sort. Um, I can't really remember, but all I remember is seeing all the images and whatnot. Um, I was not very impressed by them. Uh, that's probably why I don't really remember much about it. It was uh, Star-Lord as uh, Black Panther as Star-Lord. Which is just really, that's kind of unnecessary. Like, what if Black Panther was Star-Lord? I don't know how that's exactly going to work. Maybe they might be able to do something good with it, but I don't really know. Of course, I'll reserve my judgments until, of course, watching it. Um, Some of the other ones that we were also uh, shown was uh, Peggy Carter as Captain America. Uh, What if Peggy Carter became Captain America? I don't think that's very exciting either. I think that's very... It's kind of boring. I mean, the uh, the animation looks pretty cool, like from the art style and whatnot, from what I've seen so far. It looks really nice, so I will give them that. Um, you can always count on Walt Disney to make some very good animation. Um, there were some other, like, really weird ones, but I, I don't know. I just don't think that the... Um, I think this, the best what-if stories come from like uh, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, X-Men, and Spider-Man. I don't really think that the... um. I don't think that the Avengers really have good what-if stories. The only good what-if story would have to be like uh, when a vision that killed the Avengers or something like that. Um, that was based off of Avengers issue number 9. Um, look it up if you guys have a moment. It's a pretty... It's decent. It's, it's alright, but I don't... I don't know, I'm just not, not a big fan of the What If Avengers stories. Um, there's a What If Captain Marvel Had Not Died. That's a cool What If story. That's, of course, based off of um, the death of Captain Marvel. Um, we talked about that a few episodes ago. Um, there was also a Conan the Barbarian one. That's fantastic. That's a great one. Conan, I love Conan the Barbarian. I didn't get into him until about like a few years ago. But I really do appreciate the art. Um, I think John Buscema drew it, so that's why I was such a big fan of it. I wasn't really a big fan of the actual like uh, world up until like a few months back. But um, still, that's a great story. It's what if uh, Conan Barbarian existed in the modern day. That's actually a really cool book. Um, that's a really cool idea too. And there's also a what if Wolverine and Conan the Barbarian fought. My money is actually on Conan. I never actually read it. 
I just know the cover. I love the cover art. Most of the time, I um, I buy my comics for the cover. I don't always like read them. I mean, I, I read a decent, mo- the majority, probably ninety nine percent of them. But some of them, it's like, oh, that's a nice cover. Let me just pick it up because either it's the artist I like or it's a unique style or something like that. And that's just one of those books that I just picked up because I just thought it was like really cool. Uh, and there was also um, a really, really, really good um, Fantastic Four um, what if stories. Like, there's a what if the Fantastic Four lost a trial of Galactus back in like Fantastic Four issue. 232 262 sorry I was like 30 issues off but um, I have a list here of some of my favorite what if stories uh, I also really love the uh, what if Professor X had become the juggernaut that's a really really cool story um, so imagine you had the powers of Professor Xavier telepath when probably one, probably second or so like the the strongest telepath the world's ever seen. And now he's got the powers of the Juggernaut. He's like a stro- almost as strong as the Hulk. He's inv- Nothing can hurt him. He's invincible. And that makes him like so dangerous. I remember um, a few years ago, there's this uh, tabletop miniatures game called uh, Heroclix. They released uh, a figurine of him. And it's a very cool looking one. Please look that one up too. It's a very nice thing. A Hero Clicks is a tabletop miniature game based off of like um, superheroes and uh, other type of movies, all kinds of popular culture type stuff. Um, I have a few of them. I used to collect them a lot when I was younger. It's a very fun game. I just kind of fell out of it. I don't know. Maybe it's got too expensive for me because I had one too many um, one too many hobbies. Couldn't collect all like six of my hobbies. Like there's too much, but um, still a lot of fun. Um, there's also a um. When the Fantastic Four didn't get the powers when they went into space, it's almost like they're Ghostbusters, but um, but except they fight like giant monsters and stuff like that instead of ghosts. And that I think that's like probably like my second favorite What If story. Um, there's also one with uh, What If Spider-Man had never let go of the, of the symbiote. Symbiote. Um, that's really really cool too. It's a uh. It's like the symbiote like bonds with them completely and becomes like super powerful and incredibly strong. That's that's like awesome. I really do like that. Um, there's also one with like what if the Daredevil uh, killed Kingpin during um I think it was uh Frank Miller's second run on Daredevil during the Dare um Dare, I think it was Daredevil Born Again. Yeah, uh, he has she's a, she's a chance to kill Kingpin there, but he doesn't and. Um, the story just goes downhill from there, and that's like really, really awesome. See, these these are the type of stories that I want to see as the animation. I mean, I know some of them are a little too violent to do because I know um, I'm pretty sure the cartoons are more directed towards children, so of course don't do the incredibly violent ones, but do some of the fun ones. You know, like the Fantastic Four all having the same superpower. That's these these are all cool hidden gems of the What If stories. These are What If stories that I like to see. Um, and I do respect uh, Marvel for um, creating original what-if stories based upon the movies. But that's not to say that they can't already do, like, the Daredevil sto- what-if stories. Um, a, a, f- a few of the actual good Captain America what-if stories, like, what if he didn't quit being Captain America during the time he became Nomad? That's kind of cool. Like, what if, what if he 
What if he never became a fugitive? What if he, what if he actually went to prison for during that time in between Infinity War and Civil War? Uh, let's talk about. You can talk. You have a you have a whole episode all about that. What would what would what would the world have been like without Captain America still doing these secret missions with his uh, with his secret Avengers? That's a cool what is story. I think that would actually be a really cool one. I like to see that actually. I'm coming up with and you know what the thing is I'm coming up with a lot of these off the top of my head. That's the thing. It's like I feel like he's got fun with it. Maybe this is with the with, with the um with the uh, Black Panther as Star Lord probably is. Is it a um? Is it just a fun one that they say thought off the top of their head? Maybe I might actually give that one a shot now because that seems I mean, I don't really like it, but maybe it might be a little fun. Maybe it might be a little cool. I mean, Peggy Carter's cat, that's kind of like, whatever, but like, like, what are the premises behind that? That's kind of cool. I like, kinda, I'm kind of digging that now. I don't agree with it, but I can kind of dig it. Uh, but today, I want to talk about my absolute favorite what-if story. Um, it's one of the, um, one of the what-if stories that really got me into, into reading, like, Ronald Dane comic books. Uh, when I was a kid, I haven't talked about it yet, but, um. I think it was, let me double check it for you guys right here. I don't want to get the wrong issue. But, um, what if number 105 from uh, volume 2, first appearance of Spider Girl, February 1998. Now, I was already, uh, I was already, how old was I? 98, I was like a year old. So, um, disregarding that, I didn't really get into it until I was like five or six. So, I was already, yeah. So it was, it, they were already pretty deep into the story. But um, the point is, it's a what-if story where um, Peter Parker fights the Green Goblin. And I think it's Harry Osborn. I don't think it's Norman. But he uh, he fights the Green Goblin. And the Green Goblin beats him so bad that costs him the use of his leg. And he has a chance to um, to get a robotic one, like a... To replace this new, to replace, I think it's the left leg that was so injured during the fight by, um, by a Reed Richards. And Reed Richards, uh, offers him this chance to fix it. And Spider Man basically says no. And he decides this is his calling for him to finally settle down with Mary Jane and have a child. And the story follows that. And it's, it's actually really, really good. It's probably my this is this is definitely my 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 favorite way of story definitely it was it was so good that Marvel requested that they make a Spider Girl series a whole world from this what if story. It's just, it was the original story is one issue long obviously, and I can't even remember what the what if story was about. All I remember was that it was like almost Spider Girl's origin story, and like a daily, a day like a like a li- a day in the life of her, and her uh and her family, and. It takes place. I think she was sixteen when she when she began to like uh, learn about her powers because her powers didn't manifest until she was already later into her teens. And um, her mom really supports it, and her dad doesn't. And she's like, I really like Spider Girl because she's she's quite literally a combination of both of her parents. She's got the um, the brains of her father and that sense of heroism. And like justice and like you know helping people, but she's also got the charisma and the like the beauty of her mother, 
she cuts her hair like really short and stuff like that. And she actually wears Ben Riley. She wears Ben Riley's costume. Uh, ben Riley's the clone of Spider-Man. Um, we're not going to talk about that though. Cause that's the, that story makes me incredibly sad every time I think about it. But um, it started off really good, ended really bad. Clone Zaga is what I'm talking about. We'll probably talk about that. I talk about some of the worst comic book stories of all time. Of modern age, anyway. But um, So she eventually gets her own series, and her series just follows her being a superhero. And what's really interesting is that... um. Unlike her father, who literally just beat up the villain and then throw him in jail, Spider Girl is um, always seeking to redeem her villains. Like one of her first uh, villains is this chick called Raptor. She, I think she's some way in form related to Vulture. I haven't touched these books since I was like ten, maybe even younger. So you're gonna have to forgive me. Um, and she, I think on like the second or third fight they have. She like manages to um to turn Raptor into like an anti-hero to try to change her and um to become like best friends and everything. They don't know each other's secret identities, obviously, but she finally like rede- like she like she tw- she changes sides, and this is really cool to see that. Like, I don't think there's many superheroes out there that are trying to like redeem their villains, and she also fights um Normie Osborne, who is the grandson. Of Norman Osborn, the original Green Goblin. And they have like a really awkward relationship. It's like he's seeking to redeem the uh the Osborne name. And um Peter obviously does not agree with this. He thinks he's up to something. And they do fight a little bit, and then eventually he like becomes like her um like kinda like her oracle in a way. Like he's like the tech guy who uh who knows things that Spider-Girl might not be aware of. Um, like, other supervillains, other, um, techniques and crime fighting, you know, like, usual stuff. And it's, uh, it's really cool that, uh, she has that. Because, like, her father, her father didn't really have like, someone to sister. It was kind of just, like, him. I mean, he had Mary Jane, but he and Mary Jane were always, like, together. Sometimes they would break up. Other times they would, you know, and sometimes she wouldn't really want him to go fight crime. You know, the usual, like, you know, love interest, like, uh, issue here. And, oh, which actually really funny is that, um, her, well, her name is Mayday Parker. She's named after Aunt May. Um, the really funny part about her is that um, she's dating the son of Flash Thompson, which pisses off Peter a lot because Flash used to bully, um, Peter a lot when they were kids, but um, it's really interesting because uh, they basically did a whole arc that basically redeemed Flash Thompson, where he actually apologized to Peter and stuff. But this completely ignores that, almost as if like that that like that story never happened, which is something a little weird. Or maybe Tom DeFalco, he was the writer on the book. Maybe he didn't agree with that change to um to Peter and uh, Flash's like relationship. Because that's like almost non-existent in this book, but uh, she also gets a job at the Daily Bugle, still working for I think I think J. Jonah James is still the owner of the Daily Bugle in the future, but he's like an old man, and she like works there part time, in between uh, doing school and, ba- and she is also a basketball player. A very different um, 
very different approach to Peter's character. And uh, Donald, she's just a really cool character. I just really like her. She's just like, she's like mini Spider-Man, but like, she's like, she's like what everything that Spider-Man could be if he had confidence in himself. And like, she's like, she's very, she's very sure of herself. She she knows exactly what it is she, she like, that she wants. She wants to help people. And like, that's all that really matters to her. I mean, Spider-Man, of course, he does feel that way. But Spider-Man was also overtaken by selfishness, which, of course, we saw in his origin story. Whereas May is not like that whatsoever. She's also got that like uh, thing of like Parker luck, where um, her life as a superhero interferes with her um, with her life as a as a teenager. Like she she's late to class, she fucks up. On, um, oh my gosh! Please excuse my language. We're gonna beep that out. Actually, um, she messes up on her school stuff a lot. She just and she just messes up a lot, you know, and it's um, it's just kind of funny to see it. It's like like father, like daughter, and uh, it's just a really cool story. I don't think I didn't like it too much as it got later uh, later on in the series. I was not too crazy for it. Cause I remember I read almost all the way up to the series cancellation uh, as a kid. Um, by the time I was ten, just ten seven, I think I stopped reading around two thousand six because it's kind of like. I don't know. It, it just didn't feel very Spider-Girl like to me. Like they introduced the concept of clones, and I hate clones because of that clone saga fiasco that happened um, back in like nineties. Even I knew about it even in my young age, and I, I just wasn't too crazy for it. It wasn't wasn't something that I enjoyed reading. And then they also introduced the Carnage symbiote, and it took control of her, and it just wasn't. Uh, I I I like the idea of her life mimicking her father's but at the same time I feel like it's already been done and I don't really need to see it again with a different character like I, I the whole thing that made her so unique was that her dad wasn't crazy about her being a superhero of course eventually he loosened up and was like yes please go do it but like Peter didn't have that and that's what made her unique Peter had a, a aunt that had no idea that he was Spider-Man. And the only person who really had to support him was sometimes like Mary Jane. But other than that, he was just doing it because he felt guilty over his uncle's death. He felt like, like he could, if if he had been more responsible, his his uncle would have been would have been killed by that burglar. And Mayday doesn't have that. She just she was just raised to always be responsible, to always be, to always do the good thing, the right thing. And I think that's what made her so unique. So when they began writing some of these stories, when they're her, when her character took a little bit of a darker turn, a very like, it was just very awkward. It didn't really mesh well with her character, and I felt like this comes back to me again. I, I don't know if Tom DeFalco was still writing it during this time, but I just remember thinking about, I'm thinking about now, um, the idea of keeping yourself true to your character, and I feel like. Mayday taking that turn was not very much in character with herself. It was very, it was very weird. I just didn't really enjoy it. And that's what I'm really just trying to get at. It just wasn't, it just didn't feel right. Eventually they did correct this by killing off her clone and they kind of like forgot about it. But still that's like, 
you can only do that so many times before your fans start like thinking, oh geez, like this again, just forget about the clone, never happened. Um eventually they canceled the book. Um to kind of conclude the story with her like growing up. But um at the very uh about a few years ago, there was this um story called Into the Spider Verse. And it was essentially about um Spider Man from all realities coming together to fight these uh these really boring guys. It was actually a really cool story. I just wasn't too crazy for the villain. The villain was kinda eh. This guy named Moreland and his family. It's just kinda spider totem nonsense, yada yada. But the point is she was one of the spider men or spider women that they um that they went to go out and grab and Peter Parker was killed by um by the Moreland because of course he has Spider Man blood. So they weren't trying to kill all those people basically. All the spider people. And she escaped with her younger brother, who, at, yeah, towards the end of the series, just as well, as well I was thinking of, towards the end of the series, she has uh, her baby brother's born, and he's called um, Ben Parker. And they have the Uncle Ben, of course. And um, she saves him, and she starts fighting alongside all the other Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. And then, um, I, after that, I don't really know what's been up with her character. I don't think there's really been anything new. I would love to see an ongoing Spider-Girl series again. I'm a huge fan of the character. And um, it was some of my earliest um, reading, especially as a kid. Um, it's something that actually, actually my younger brother actually got me into her. Um, he used to collect her books a lot. I was more of Batman Hulk, like I said before, in Avengers. And he always had the um, the graphic novels. That's how I really got into it. It was like volumes one to like five or something like that. And we were that's how I that's how I got introduced to the character and that's how I began reading it. But it's a very good read up until around issue fifty ish. You can probably stop around there, honestly. Because I think that's like that's when it was the best it ever was. That's like as good as it gets. And then you could probably skip the whole clone thing because her he she and her clone become partners and again, not my cup of tea. Maybe it might be yours. By all means please read it. Not my kind of thing, but that right there is the what if story that I want to see. This what if story that I'm talking about right now, the Spider Girl what if story, is the what if story. I think this is the what if stories of what if stories. A what if story is so good that it gave a character its own series. I think that's as good as it gets. I think that's what every what if story shouldn't try to be, but to try to leave a, a mark. On your on your audience, I think Spider Girl did that. I think it accomplishes its mission. Anyway, we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about uh, another topic of mine uh, that I have on the list today. Uh, we'll be right back. She just and she just messes up a lot, you know, and it's um, it's just kind of funny to see it. It's like like father, like daughter, and uh, she, it's just a really cool story. I don't think I didn't like it too much as it got later uh, later on in the series. I was not too crazy for it because I remember I read almost all the way up to the series cancellation uh, as a kid. Um, by the time I was ten, just seven, I think I stopped reading around two thousand six because I just kind of like. I don't know. It, it just didn't feel very Spider-Girl-like to me. 
like they introduced the concept of clones and I hate clones because of that clone saga fiasco that happened um, back in the late 90s. Even I knew about it even in my young age. And I, I just wasn't too crazy for it. It wasn't wasn't something that I enjoyed reading. And then they also introduced the Carnage symbiote and it took control of her. And it just wasn't... Uh, I, I, I like the idea of her life mimicking her father's. But at the same time... I feel like it's already been done and I really need to see it again with a different character. Like I I the whole thing that made her so unique was that her dad wasn't crazy about her being a superhero. Of course eventually he loosened up and was like, Yes, please go do it. But like Peter didn't have that and that's what made her unique. Peter had a, a aunt that had no idea that he was Spider Man. And the, the only person who really had to support him was sometimes like Mary Jane. But other than that, he was just doing it because he felt guilty over his uncle's death. He felt like he could, if if he had been more responsible, his his uncle would have been would have been killed by that burglar. And Mayday doesn't have that. She just she was just raised to always be responsible, to always be, to always do the good thing, the right thing. And I think that's what made her so unique. So when they began writing some of these stories, when they're her when her character took a little bit of a darker turn, a very, like, it was just very awkward. It didn't really mesh well with her character. And I felt like, this comes back to me again. I, I don't know if Tom DeFalco was still writing it during this time, but I just remember thinking about, I'm thinking about now, um, the idea of keeping yourself true to your character. And I feel like Mayday taking that turn was not very much in character with herself it was very it was very weird I just didn't really enjoy it and that's what I'm really just trying to get it just wasn't it just didn't feel right eventually they did correct this by killing off her clone and they kind of like forgot about it but still that's like you can only do that so many times before your fans start like thinking oh geez like this again just forget that the clone never happened um eventually they canceled the book um kind of conclude the story with her like growing up but um at the very uh it's about a few years ago there was this um story called into the spider-verse and it was essentially about um spider-man from all realities coming together to fight these uh these really boring guys it was actually a really cool story i just wasn't too crazy for the villain the villain was kind of eh. this guy named Moreland and his family it's kind of spider totem nonsense, yada yada. But the point is, she was one of the spider men or spider women that they um that they went to go out and grab. And Peter Parker was killed by um by the Morlin because of course he has Spider Man blood. So they were trying to kill all those people, basically all the spider people. And she escaped with her younger brother, who at the, yeah, towards the end of the series, yes, that's what I was thinking of. Towards the end of the series. She has uh, her baby brother's born, and he's called um, Ben Parker. They got the Uncle Ben, of course. And um, she saves him, and she starts fighting alongside all the other Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. And then um, I, after that, I don't really know what's been up with her character. I don't think there's really been anything new. I would love to see an ongoing Spider-Girl series again. I'm a huge fan of the character, and um, it was some of my earliest um, reading especially as a kid. Um, it's something that actually, actually my younger brother actually got me into her. 
Um, he used to collect her books a lot. I was more of Batman, Hulk, like I said before, in Avengers, and he always had the um, the graphic novels. That's how I really got into it. It was like volumes one to like five or something like that, and we were that's how I that's how I got introduced to the character, and that's how I began reading it. But it's a very good read up until around issue fifty-ish. You can probably stop around there, honestly, because I think that's like that's when it was the best it ever was. That's like as good as it gets. Then they could probably skip the whole clone thing because her he she and her clone become partners and again, not my cup of tea. Maybe it might be yours. By all means, please read it. Not my kind of thing. But that right there is the what if story that I want to see. This what if story that I'm talking right now, the Spider Girl what if story, is the what if story. I think this is the what if stories of what if stories. A what if story is so good that it gave a character its own series. I think. That's as good as it gets. I think that's what every what if story shouldn't try to be, but to try to leave a, a mark on your on your audience. I think Spider Girl did that. I think it accomplishes its mission. Anyway, we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about uh, another topic of mine uh, that I have on the list today. Uh, we'll be right back. Now, as of late, I want to say maybe about maybe of the past month, I've been uh been getting back into video games. Um, more specifically, the um the video games from my childhood. I've been replaying a lot of some of the really old school video games. And now I say these are from my childhood, but if I'm actually if I'm being realistic. They're not really from my childhood. They're actually from my father's childhood, but I was I was raised upon them. I, of course, I played the typical games from the early 2000s, Sonic uh, Adventure 2, um, Super Mario Sunshine, Super Smash Bros. Melee, uh, Luigi's Mansion, all that, all that really good stuff. Um, those are all incredibly fun games, but as a kid the games that I was most attracted to was late 80s, early 90s Nintendo. Um, those are games that essentially shaped the kind of video games I would grow up playing, even today. Um, like nowadays, I, I've said it before, probably in my very first episode of the podcast, I don't really play too many video games, but whenever I do, it's usually some kind of RPG or some kind of a fighting game. Um, although it's just kind of ironic because those games all require massive amounts of time to actually either get good at them or to complete them. The irony is not lost to me, believe me. Um, you would think that I would just stick to some kind of first-person shooter game or something like that. The problem with that is I. I I would just really, 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 really love complex games. I cannot stand um, very simple games. I mean, sometimes I can. There are some games that I'm like, oh, this is this is pretty nice, even though it's incredibly simple. Um, however, I just really love the complexity. 
uh, as we like it. It makes it interesting when I have to figure out how the game works or how if I have to I have to solve something. Uh, I just really like that sense of adventure, a sense of excitement uh, that comes to me whenever I go to place a game similar to this. Um, but the two games I really want to talk about today is um, the first, the very first Final Fantasy game and the very first Legend of Zelda game. These are two games that I've been playing constantly, like nonstop for the past month. And I, I'm, I just, it just reminds me of why I love the game so much. Now, as a kid, I could never, I, I remember I could beat almost any Final Fantasy game, but I could never ever beat a Zelda game. I have, I've did not I've not beaten a Zelda game until like last year. I finally completed uh Breath of the Wild and um the very first Legend of Zelda game. I finally beat them. I have never completed a Zelda game. That's I, I will say that without any form of embarrassment because I was just never really good at video games as a kid. I was very good at um some of them but it's like a football coin, and that and I get distracted incredibly easily. I'll always be bouncing from game to game because, as a kid, my dad was also a very avid uh, gamer. We um, he had, we had every single game, from uh, like was it like not two thousand one all the way to like two thousand eighteen. I want to say because my dad would often buy him. So, and he and. My brothers and I, we all played very similar games, and so was my dad. So, we all we always had a different game like coming in like every like two months. So, and with school, I was always like studying and whatnot. I wasn't really studying; I was mostly drawing. But I was doing other things that took up my time. So I was ne- I would never really complete the games. Um, up until now, since so I have a little more free time, I have some more me time whenever I'm not at work. For like 50 hours a week. Uh, never thought that being an adult would uh, take up so much time. But here we are. Um, when I was a kid, I um, I loved Final Fantasy. The very first Final Fantasy game I played was Final Fantasy uh, 6. If you're, um, that's in terms of the Japanese releases. If you're talking about the American releases, that's actually Final Fantasy 3. It's confusing, but it's not the point. It's just how many people who actually enjoy the games and actually play them know which one I'm talking about. But to the average viewer, you can just... just I'm talking about Final Fantasy 3. Now, that's the first one I was introduced to. I found it, believe it or not, inside my dad's room. He had picked it up. It was for the Game Boy Advance. It was um, one of the ports that they had been releasing throughout the early 2000s. There were a lot of those. And I think that's probably why I love those old school games so much because all the ports they had for the Game Boy. Um, and I, I have very, very fond memories of my Game Boy. I loved it to death. I still have the micro. It's completely beat up because I had like locked it away and have not seen it for like four years. And I just found it a few months back. And it is in completely shitty condition. I'm very sorry. One day, I'm probably going to pick up a new one. Mine was a base silver with like a black, um, like a black screen. It was um, the micro. I love that thing to death because it could fit legit anywhere. That Those ads did not lie whatsoever. 
they um you could literally fit that thing in your back pocket you could fit it um you could probably even fit it um inside your wallet i would not be surprised if you had a big enough wallet yes you could um and the battery was incredibly good for um the size it was but anyway i found this game and I uh, I played the living life out of it. I sucked at it. I died a lot because I did not understand what it was I was doing. I was five years old, and it was I, I it was it was the best. It was one of the best games I ever played in my life up to that point. And then I never played it ever again. I came back to it when I was um maybe nine, and uh, I think by the time I remember I remember I remember my my younger brother. He and I would both play. We would take turns playing it. Like he had his own Game Boy, and then we swap games because that's what we used to do. We used to go back and forth. And whenever we get to a part that I couldn't beat, uh, he would take it, and then he would find a way to beat it on his file. And we go back and forth, and we start sharing what we could find. It was it was that's probably how it was living back in the eighties or the nineties before. I mean, there, of course, there were game manuals and guides and whatnot. There's no internet, so you had to rely on people you knew, and I feel like that—that's kind of like what it was like. You couldn't just Google it. I mean, you probably could at this time. This is early 2000s. I mean, yeah, you probably could, but that's not the point. We didn't think like that. We were really young, um, and it went like that for like maybe two more years. And by the time out, we were like 10 or 11. I finally beat it, and I was so ecstatic, so excited. I um, I almost pissed my pants to be honest. I w- I was just pumped because it was like I finally defeat. I finally beat this epic of a game, this game that had caused me so much trauma all throughout my childhood because I could not beat it because there was so many, so many things that the game did not explain to you. You need to figure out for yourself. And I remember I sat there for hours upon hours. I remember we were allowed to play games um for about like an hour on um on weekdays when we. Well, it's like school nights, so I would use that hour up to the best of my abilities, trying to figure out what it was that I had to do to get past a certain point. And after I beat that game, I went. I told my dad I want to get a uh, Final Fantasy one. I want to play. I want to play them in order because I realized. I've, I mean, I knew I was playing it out of order because I played six first, but then it hit me like, wait, I'm playing six first. So I wanted to go back and move my way forward. So I'm like, all right, Dad, let's go. Let's let's go pick up num- let's go pick up Final Fantasy number one. So we did. And it was um it was one of the biggest mistakes in my life. I love the game to death, but it was if if I thought that Final Fantasy three or six, if you're in Japan, was hard, Final Fantasy one was like ten times worse. And I loved it. I did not mind. I remember running back home. I remember I brought my Game Boy with me too. So I can play on the way home. I remember starting to file. And the first thing that we got. Was this epic intro. Again this is the port for the Game Boy Advance. And the music was was beautiful. And it was this crawl of text. Explaining that. That the four warriors of light. Have come to restore the, um, the. the energy to the stones, and I got so pumped. I was like, so I got these four stones. That's obvious. What's next? And the first thing you do is select which characters you want. There were six characters, I remember. 
it was the um doing this all from memory so don't um don't go blasting me in the comments um there was the fighter who was like the tank um and like main attacker of the group there was the um the black belt who uses bare fist and sometimes nunchucks he was pretty cool looking um there was the uh the thief who was just really fast and he could uh run away that was like all he really did and then there was the um the white mage the black mage and the red mage and for like 6 months i had no idea what the purpose of the red mage was now anyway i chose the fighter the white mage the black mage and the red mage and i completely regret choosing the red mage i wish i had chose um Wish I chose something different. Anyway, I went to go play the game, and I was so excited. And then I saw how shitty the graphics were because the graphics were really bad. Because I forgot this was in the 80s. It was in the 80s, so you know it was a bunch of stuff. But I didn't really mind it. I didn't really matter. I didn't really bother me too much. It was more like a nuisance. So I was like, oh, well, there goes that. Um, so my character models didn't look as detailed and nice. And I um. You started off right in the middle field, and there was a big city right above you, and you walk right into it, and it's the city of dreams. And the beginning of that game is so epic. You go to see a princess, which is so cliche, but I didn't care because it was awesome. I was playing as my characters, and then I went into the cave that I was told to go to after talking to the king, who explained the whole backstory about his princess, about the princess getting kidnapped, and um, this one of his knights betraying him. I got killed in the very first fight as soon as I entered that cave. That's when I restarted the game and took out the Red Mage. That's right. The Red Mage is not cutting it. Every single time, I tried it five more times with the Red Mage, right? And that the rest of the regular, the original team. Every single time, the Red Mage died. So, I restarted the game and took him out. And I replaced him with a thief. Looking back at it, I probably should have kept the the, um, the red mage because the thief doesn't really do anything. Unknown to me, there was a glitch in the game where um, the thief's main thing is that he can help the party run away from like really hard battles. And I don't know if the ported uh, version of this game fixed it. However, the thief doesn't really do what he's supposed to do because of glitch. He can't run away. So, yeah. I went with the thief eventually becomes the ninja which is pretty cool but it doesn't make any sense the ninja a thief to ninja that doesn't really I guess that fits anyway I played through the whole game and I beat it in about uh, maybe about I want to say maybe six months probably makes sense about six months um and it was a lot of fun I enjoyed every single minute of it the last boss was amazing it was like a it was almost like a like a mind boggling uh adventure because you went to go gather the four it was like each of the stones represented like a piece like one of the four elementals water earth fire uh wind or air and um i remember the city in the clouds was um the hardest one to get to however the underwater fortress was the worst dungeon i have ever played in the game in my life except for final except for legend of zelda uh the original the original legend of zelda game 
The sixth dungeon is by far the worst dungeon I've ever faced in my life. Those two dungeons, underwater dungeon, I know there's a joke about water dungeons being the like the worst, like water uh, levels in general, as being like the worst levels. That is not a lie. That's not, that's not a lie. It's not a myth. It's the truth. Okay, that uh, that dungeon was awful. And then I'm going to get to Legend of Zelda 6, uh, 6 dungeon in a second. But it was horrifying. I remember it was like every two seconds I was in a combat. And I was like, come on, I just want to kill the Kraken. And as soon as I got the Kraken, I started laughing. Because he was so easy, for one. And two, he looked absolutely ridiculous. The fire guy was really was was just like useful. He was, he was just a little boring. And then the, but I think Medusa was the Earth um chick. She was all right. She was like half and half. She was a decent challenge. And so was the wind guy, the, the air guy, whoever he was. I honestly don't remember anything about the wind one because I beat it so fast. I like burned right through that that section of the game. It was like as soon as I beat the Kraken, the rest of the game went by so fast. Um, the only thing I never did was the challenge dungeon that was inside the this like cave area. No, the whole game's caves. So I mean, I don't know how to describe it. But I remember it was in the upper left hand corner of the map, and I never really got a chance to actually beat that that portion of the game. But I do remember beating it, and I was so pumped because it was as if like the day had never happened because you kind of go back in time. And everything like stops itself. It's like no one actually remembers the heroes except for the heroes themselves. So like, yeah, it was really cool. All kinds of like mysterious things and like like secrets that you could do. And I just really love the game. And with uh Zelda, um that game, I hated so much as a kid because um I thought Ocarina Time and Twilight Princess were like the best games ever. Especially Ocarina of Time. I could talk about Ocarina of Time all day long. Also, remember Link to the Past. But um, after playing the original Legend of Zelda game, uh, more recently, I played it uh, two years ago and I loved it again. And I played it again. I didn't beat it two years ago. Because remember, I can't beat Zelda games. But I won the last dungeon of the first game as of this recording. I'm very ha- I'm very satisfied. I did not use a guide. Uh, I mean, I kind of did, but I didn't use like a strategy guide. I instead looked up Legend of Zelda uh, one map because that getting around the overworld in the first Legend of Zelda game is a nightmare. It's it's horrifying. It's scary. It's it's too much. You get lost so easily, and that's what kept on happening to me. And that's probably why I never actually beat the game. It wasn't the, like the secrets. It was just the map was just like so horrible. You would look at it, and it was just a red... You were the red dot, or white dot. And then you... There was a gray, um... A gray square, which represented the world. All of Hyrule. And it shows nothing. It was like... At least give me, like, a map at some point in the game, so I could just, like, know where I'm at. Because it was like... So many of the areas look the same, so I would be thinking, I've already been here, and I'll go back that end up in some place where I wasn't meant to be and then die. And that happened to me repeatedly, repeatedly. And that kind of was the whole point of the game was um, you didn't really know anything, which was, which, which, which was one of the reasons why I loved it so much. Um, I love that sense of mystery to the game because it was really cool. But um, 
it was just so annoying. Um, so it's with the map. I didn't care about having to bomb every single um. Every single like wall that I saw, that I was fine. I was I was okay with that. It was just the getting around that was so aggravating. But eventually, I kind of got used to it. Um, after find after uh, looking up the map on Google, thank you, uh, Legend of Zelda Wiki. Thank you very much. Um, and the first like five dungeons were like a breeze. It's like cakewalk. It was so easy. I mean, on the um the white tunic or the silver tunic, one of the two. It's not important. The important part is I found it without the guide. And I found the white sword without the guide. That's all that really matters in the end. But what I didn't find without the guide was the blue candle. Was it red candle? It's the upgrade to the regular candle. That one I had to look up. And then I found the wand by accident. That was kind of fun. Um, I don't like getting hit in Legend of Zelda, especially the first one, because when you um when you hit the attack button, it shoots out like a little sword, like a sword blast. But as soon as you get hit once, you lose that ability, and then you have to walk up to the enemies. So the problem is the enemies are like super fast most of the time, so you, you kind of like miss them. And Link only hits in one direction. But there's eight directions. So he can only hit like four, like half. So you have to hit exactly on the enemies. And it's, it's just really annoying. The combat's probably my biggest complaint about the game. Which they do fix uh, two games later in Link to the Past. Which is another fantastic game I would love to talk about one day. The second Legends of the game is very different from the first one. I mean, it's similar in, mo- in most of the rights. However, it's very different because um, it's like a two D side squirrel scroller when you're um when you're in dungeon and stuff like that, almost like Altered Beast. I would want to say if you guys know that game. If not, please look it up. It's a really pretty fun game. It's one of the it's one of the few non Sonic the Hedgehog Sega games that I really do enjoy. I'm sorry, I just think Sonic the Hedgehog is obviously the best Sega game. Like, no if ands or buts about it. It's the truth. However, um. The second game is really weird, and I definitely recommend that one. That's the next one we're gonna move on to. I um, after I'm completing with this one, uh, it's very it's a lot of fun, but um, the the sixth dungeon man, it was just wild. The the dark nuts, it's kind of funny. I didn't know that dark nuts were um, were an actual thing. I thought that was just a joke that my friend made up about me. So that that is it, it's an inside joke a friend of mine and myself but the point is um my instagram name is the dark nut rises and and listen it's all these things called the dark nuts which are like these little knights and you can't hit them in the front because they have the shield so you hit them in the sides of the back and it's the most frustrating thing ever and to make matters worse is just one room inside that dungeon where this is a massive block in the center of the room and you can move maybe like three spaces um, all around, right? And dark nuts are everywhere. There's like at least eight of them. And they just, they don't really attack you. They kind of just like walk around. Like just like start walking around like random directions. And they knock out so much of your hearts. And it's the most frustrating thing I've ever done inside a video game in my life. 
That's probably an over-exaggeration. There's probably worse things I've probably done in video games. However, this right here is probably up there. It's probably number two. It's like non-stop. It took me at least 10 minutes to do that one room. I did not want to die. I died enough in the very beginning of the game. And I died enough from my childhood. So I didn't want to die here. So I kept running back and forth and all around trying to get them. And it was so aggravating. But as soon as I finished that dungeon, I was so happy. Thankfully, the boss was so easy. Thank goodness. Because I was ready to kill myself after that. Because it was just so much. It, it was just so ridiculous. I don't know who approved that. But the, thank goodness, the next like three dungeons after that are so easy. Not easy, but they're like compared to that. Like As soon as you beat Dungeon 6, that's it. There's no way that anything else in that I forget that game can throw at you that will ever make you like this angry. But I digress. I'm going to beat it sometime on my next day off, which is not tomorrow because tomorrow I work. But the day after that, most likely, I'm going to beat it again without the guide. So I don't like using guides. I don't believe in them. Though if you really do like them and you need the help, I, I, of course, please take them. Just personally, I like to. I like to feel the game as it is. But um those are like two very two games I'm incredibly passionate about. I was not as passionate about Zelda as I am right now up until like a few months ago because I am I mean I always enjoyed the games, but right now I can definitely see why people love Zelda so much. And Final Fantasies as a series is one of my favorite series ever. I've played just about all of them. Um I have not finished all of them, however. However, I've played enough of them, I played enough of each of the games, I can say that I just really, really, really love this franchise. And I hope that if you guys are not Final Fantasy fans, but are still huge fans of video games, you guys do check them out, because yes, they are very uh, cliche, and they're, they're full of memes, and they are very much um, very common tropes, but that's not the point. The point is, they're fantastic games, and they have like a little sense, of, a little bit of nostalgia in them. That's all it really is. I think that's probably going to be a theme in the next few episodes. Just nostalgia. Um, that's all I really got for today. That's all I really wanted to say. It's something that just kept on coming up across my mind about you know, a couple of odds and ends. Again, this episode is like a mixed bag. Um, I want to definitely make a post on uh, Instagram. I know I forgot to make one for last episode. Because I was working so much. I was working for a whole week straight without any days off. And I just like. I set a timer for when my. um For when this episode should go live. And I did not make an Instagram post. To coincide with that. Because of work. And then my sleep schedule is all knocked up now. And I'm, I'm like all over the place right now. But I'm still producing the content. So I think we're we're still going pretty good. Hopefully next week. My schedule should go back to normal. But um, in the comment, uh, the comment section down below, please tell me what kind of video games are you guys a big fan of? Um, what what franchises like get you like really, really into? Or which ones are you guys really passionate about? Um, other than Final Fantasy and uh, Zelda, I'm also a humongous uh Super Mario Brothers fan. I play Mario Brothers all day long, and I don't even get uh, sweaty hands when I play anymore. That's how that's how much I love Mario. I'm also a huge fan of Donkey Kong. 
And I also love the Gears of War franchise. I'm not always big into shooters. However, I love Gears of War. I've been playing it since I was like, you know, 13, 12. And I love the franchise. I'm very curious to know what are some of your guys' favorite uh, video game franchises. And also, if you guys are a fan of What If Stories, what is your favorite What If Story? I'm also very curious to hear about that. Uh, thank you guys very much, as always, for tuning in. Um, we'll talk to you again uh, real soon.